I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 51. We're actually going to be bouncing around quite a bit, so you'll probably want to have your Bibles open. Um, Psalm 51, uh, actually we read part of this this morning, so I'm not going to repeat the whole thing, but I'll just sort of remind you by reading the first few verses. Uh, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 51, you know, for all the times that we do like a confession and assurance time in this church, I guess Psalm 51 is probably the passage of Scripture we quote the most because uh, it's this section of the Bible where we have the writer at about his lowest point sensing the gravity of his sin, how far he's fallen, and, and you hear in almost every verse this hope, this hope against hope, that there is a God who is merciful, um, that there is a God who can forgive. And if, if you look at the psalm, you know that we actually have a clue about where it came from. It says at the top there, even before verse 1, it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Remember that story? It's, uh, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you want to turn to it. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's on page 325 in my Bible. Um, the story starts with this note about how it's the springtime, the time of year when kings go off to war. And uh, you, know, it was kinda, you don't want to fight in the wintertime. It's kind of gross and rainy and cold. So springtime is when you kind of get the, the army ramped up. Uh, this is the time that kings go to war. But then um, we read that the Israelites are fighting the Ammonites. So there's a war going on. But then there's a strange detail, which is that David, the king, the king who, if you know the, the rest of the story, you know that David was actually like, he was famous for being a warrior. Like he was, he was famous especially in battle. But for reasons that aren't given, he's not with the troops. He's at home in the palace. And not only is he in the palace, but we read that he's actually on the roof of the palace. And if you can kind of picture ancient Jerusalem, you've got to picture it's, it's, it's built on a hill. The king's place would be at the highest point of the hill, so when he's on his roof, he can sort of see the whole city. He can kind of see it all laid out around him. And while he's looking around, he sees, I don't know if it's somebody on a roof or somebody in a courtyard, but he's got a good view. And he sees a woman, and she's naked, and she's taking a bath. And David likes what he sees. And so he he calls one of his servants and he, he asks, uh, who's that? 
and, and the servant says, that is, uh, that's Bathsheba. It's the daughter of Eliam. And the wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that's about where the story should end. Um, of course, it doesn't end there. Uh, David sends one of his servants to go get this woman. And, uh, and things go very quickly from there. Uh, in verse 4, he sleeps with her. In verse 5, she's pregnant. And in verse 6, David panics. The problem is that this guy, this Uriah the Hittite, the husband, is a soldier. And he's where soldiers are supposed to be. He's at war. Which means he's going to be in for a pretty big surprise about nine months from now. Since he's been gone to war for about a month, he probably won't get back for a couple more months. Why is my wife pregnant? So David has a problem, and, uh, and he decides the solution to this problem is to hope that Uriah isn't really good at math. So he can't count nine months. Uh, maybe he'll just kind of get lost when he gets to about seven or eight. So he invites Uriah, he calls Uriah from the front lines to come back to Jerusalem. So Uriah comes back, he comes back to Jerusalem, and Uriah and the king, they're kind of chewing the fat, they're shooting the breeze a little bit, and uh, David's like, hey man, it's so good to have you back. You know, you really should go, and uh, why don't you hang out with your wife? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, it's hard out in the battlefield, I mean, you're probably exhausted, just a little R&R, you know, say hi to your wife. What David didn't anticipate is that uh, it turns out that Uriah is a super good dude. And, uh, and when David sort of tells him to go to his house, he's like, well, hold on a minute. Um, all my fellow soldiers are suffering on the front line, right? They're, they're cold, they're wet, they're sore, they're bloody, they're hungry, right? They, they don't have any comforts. It wouldn't be right for me to go home and to be with my wife. And so Uriah, this man of integrity, instead of sleeping with his wife, he sleeps on the front step of his house. David hears about this. And so he calls Uriah back. He's like, hey, Uriah. Kind of making small talk again, except this time David's got a secret weapon. He's got a bottle of wine. Starts pouring Uriah some wine. Trying to get him a little drunk. Maybe that'll help with uh, the decision-making problem I uh, hear. Uh, it turns out that Uriah is such a good guy that even when he's drunk, he still does the right thing. And, uh, and instead of going home, he stays in the servants' quarters in the palace. He sleeps on the floor. So David takes it to, I don't know what, DEFCON 2 or something. And he uh, comes up with a new plan. And he decides that he'll, he'll call this messenger, the, the guy who had, uh, who had brought Uriah from the front line. He's going he's gonna to call that guy in, and he gives him some new instructions. He writes him a letter to bring to the commander. And he tells the commander at the front line through this letter, uh, when Uriah gets back, I want you to send him to where the battle is the, the hottest, where there's the worst fighting. And send them out there to the front lines and then pull all the other men back. 
And he's not even subtle about it. He says, and do this so that he'll die. And so the, the messenger goes, he relays this message to the commander, and incredibly, the commander does what he's told. And Uriah is killed. Actually, a bunch of other soldiers are killed too. And the messenger eventually goes back to the palace and he tells David what has happened. And David, in one of the most cynical moments in the whole Bible, he, he hears about Uriah's death, he hears that all these other people have died, and basically he says, well, you know, it's war, you know, bad stuff happens in war. And you read this stuff, and David is such a slimy, awful person. Um, and he's a murderer. And, you know, I preached in this passage once before and, and emphasized, um, you know, Psalm 51 calls this uh, adultery, and I guess technically it is that. But it's really something more than that, right? Because if you look at David throughout the story, the way that he interacts with everybody in the story, he's sending people here and there. He's given orders to all these different people. And they're, they're always doing exactly what he says. I mean, even incredibly, right, when he tells this commander, this terrible command, right, to, to kill off his best soldiers, the commander, who's not a pushover, I presume, the commander does exactly what he's told. In other words, when the king wants something done, he always gets what he wants. So now you tell me, do you think a wife, a woman, living at home alone without her husband, when the king's servants come to pick her up, do you think she can say no? No, she can't say no. Right? This isn't, uh, this isn't merely adultery. Right? This is what we would call today, we would call this a sexual assault. So now we've got David, we've got him on murder charges, we've got him on rape charges. And then this week, as I was saying this passage, it got even worse. I hadn't noticed this detail before, um, but uh, somebody pointed this out to me. So before David was the king in the palace, there was another king. There was this King Saul. And you might remember, Saul had like this axe to grind with David. Like they had this real hot and cold relationship. And sometimes Saul would want to like attack David. So David had to live like off the grid sometimes. He was like out in the wilderness. And uh, it was all very like Robin Hood, Sherwood Forest kind of stuff like uh, running from the law. And you remember Robin Hood, he had like, he had this, these guys with him in the woods. You remember what those guys were called? The Merry Men, right? Um, and the Merry Men, like they're super loyal. They'll do anything for Robin Hood. They'll fight for him. They'll die for him. David had the same thing. So he had this group of guys, but the Bible doesn't call them uh, the Merry Men. The Bible calls them the Mighty Men. And uh, there were 37 of these guys, and they were super loyal. There's stories about one of them, one of them kills a lion for David. Uh, another, one, uh, another one stands up against, I think it's 600 enemy soldiers, like one guy against 600 uh, to defend uh, David and Israel. Uh, there's another time when three of these mighty men, they, they're, like, uh, they're surrounded by the Philistines, and they break through enemy lines just to get David a drink of water. These guys are like the most loyal, like the most dedicated. They will 
they will do anything for their king. They will die for their king. They're basically his bodyguards. And I look at 2 Samuel chapter 23. Verse 8 starts talking about David's mighty men. And then turn to the end of the chapter. First look at verse 34. I'm not even going to try to say that first guy's name. I'm just going to skip to the next line. Um, So one of the mighty men is Eliam, son of Ahithophel. You remember that name, Eliam? Who's Eliam? Bathsheba's father, one of the mighty men. And of course, now look down in verse 38. You got Ira the Ithrite, Garib the Ithrite, and I never noticed this before. Uriah the Hittite. Was this just any old guy that David sent to die on the battlefield? Uh, Did David assault just anybody's wife? This is like the guy who'd die for him. So he's not just a murderer, he's not just a rapist, he's a traitor as well. And here's the thing, and it's kind of the incredible thing about this story, David doesn't even seem to realize that what he's done is wrong. He just keeps digging this hole deeper and deeper. That's where Nathan comes in, right? the prophet Nathan. This is the next chapter, chapter 12. Nathan comes in, he's, he's, he's a prophet, you can kind of think of him maybe as David's pastor. And he tells David a story about sheep. We've been studying sheep for a while here at Crescent Church. So if you've been around for a while, you know that if a prophet is talking to a king about sheep, what kind of stuff is going through his head? It's like leadership stuff, right? Like Ezekiel 34 laid out the strong case, right, that that Israel's leaders are like shepherds, And they're not to do things for themselves. They're not to do things for their own gain. They're not to take advantage of the sheep. They're to care for the sheep. And do you remember what kind of sheep in particular the shepherds should be most concerned about? Like the hurt ones, the weak ones, the poor ones, right? So you got all that for background. So Nathan tells David this story. There's these two guys. They live in the same small town. One of them's rich and one of them's poor. He's not very subtle about this. One of them's rich, one of them's poor. And the rich one has got like more sheep than he knows what to do with. I mean, he's just got like flock after flock. I mean, all the hills all the way around the town are just covered with this guy's sheep. And Nathan says the poor guy has got nothing but one little lamb. One little lamb. And he says he treats that lamb like one of his own children. Sleeps in his arms. Feeds it off his table. Well, one day, a visitor comes to visit the rich man. And, you know, in those days, the custom was, you know, when somebody comes, you've got to have a meal for them. So um, this guy, he's a, he's a sheep farmer, so he's going to serve lamb. But instead of taking one of his hundreds or thousands of sheep for this guest, 
He goes and he takes the lamb that belongs to the poor guy. He steals that lamb, kills it, and serves it to his guest. And David hears this story. The king hears this story, and his blood is boiling. I mean, he is so mad. I mean, he's, he's not just the king in those days. He's, also, he's basically the Supreme Court, right? He's the judge. And he, bas- he wants this guy to hang. He says, this man must die. And then Nathan looks David in the eye, and he says, you are the man. And finally, it all clicks. And David realizes what he's done. Now, maybe you're thinking, are you kidding me? You're telling me that David didn't know that what he was doing was wrong? Let me ask you, have you ever justified behavior that you knew was wrong? Uh, You ever make some excuse for why you're not doing the right thing? I mean, it's just a few pornographic websites. I mean, it's not like anybody cares about that. I mean, sure, that kid at school gets picked on a lot, but it's not my job to stand up for him. Yeah, I probably, I probably should call that person from church. I think it'd probably mean a lot to them. I know they're really struggling. I know they're really lonely. But they just released that new show on Netflix that I really like. And, and I really want to watch all 24 episodes before work starts tomorrow morning. So I just don't have time to call. I mean, I'm sure they'll be fine tonight. As unbelievable as it is that David doesn't realize he's done wrong, um, I think we should be able to relate. David got caught. He was exposed. He realized the magnitude of what he had done. And he wrote Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. Right, that's what people usually said to David. Right? I mean, he's usually the judge. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. This morning we took more time than usual to talk about sin. We did the thing with the ashes. We sang a bunch of songs about our sin. We're about to spend the next six weeks in this season called Lent. We're going to talk about sin a lot. And someone might come to our church and they think, like, why do you guys talk about sin all the time? You know, because Christians, we've got this reputation. Right? We have a reputation for talking about sin a lot. We, we've got this reputation, especially, for talking about everybody else's sins. All the things everybody else has done wrong, all the things everybody else needs to do to change. But I think a real Christian knows a simple truth about this story. I think a real Christian knows that when Nathan says, you are the man, 
He's not just talking to David. David was not the first person to justify his bad behavior. He was not the first person to make excuses for hurting other people. God knows he wasn't the last. Now we can act all cool. Like we don't have any regrets. We don't have any issues. We can say, I mean, you want sin. I mean, I can, I can point you to some people. But there's nothing really Christian about acting all cool. Like you don't have any regrets. Like, like all the real sinners are other people. I mean, David was supposed to be this great king. The greatest king in Israel. Look at how far he fell. I mean, is there anybody that we hate more than, than that trifecta? I mean, is there anybody less forgivable than David? If it could happen to David, what should we expect from our own hearts? What, what poison is festering in there? What truths do we distort? What anger do we make excuses for? What needs of other people do we conveniently not notice? The truth is we all need a moment when we realize that Nathan is not just talking to David. He's talking to me. You know, the Christian gospel doesn't start with... Uh, Ooh, what did he do wrong? Christian gospel starts right here. It starts with, what have I done wrong? Who have I hurt? How have I fallen short? What sin have I made all kinds of comfortable excuses for? The defining moment for a Christian is not the moment that she sees how sinful everybody else is. How much everybody else needs to change. The defining moment for a Christian is when he sees how sinful he is. How much his heart needs to change. A bunch of years later, in the New Testament, Paul, he's this pastor, he's writing lots of letters, and he writes in this letter to the Romans, he's basically quoting Psalm 51. And he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in the same boat, people. I mean, David's sins are shocking. I'll grant you that. It's about as bad as it gets. But what would you find if you followed me around for a week? Right? If you could hear my thoughts. If you could see my credit card statement. If you think you've got the moral high ground on everybody else, beware the moment your prophet Nathan shows up. The Bible says it this way. It says the, that we all, we all like sheep have gone astray. Remember that about sheep? <laughs> how badly they need a shepherd, how, how much trouble they get in when they're left on their own, and here are these sheep 
And they're just all going in their own direction. That's us. Doing whatever we feel like doing. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And God has laid on him. He's talking about Jesus. God has laid on Jesus the iniquity or the sin of us all. In other words, Jesus didn't die for nothing. He didn't go up on the cross just to inspire us. A good speech would have done that. I mean, he could have just preached the Sermon on the Mount and just popped back up to heaven. A couple miracles, maybe. I mean, that's very inspiring. He went up on that cross to carry the weight. And let's be real, these are, this is a heavy weight. The weight of all the sins, of all the creeps like David, and all the hypocrites like me. He did it to bear all the guilt of everyone who has words that they can't take back and decisions that they can't undo and promises that they cannot unbreak. Jesus died to give even the worst sinners a second chance. That's the best news you're going to hear today. How does the song say it? The, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Now that doesn't mean there's not still a lot of work to do. And it doesn't mean all the damage is undone. Uh, you know, David's family was messed up for a really long time because of what he did. I mean, you can keep reading. It's, it's, about as, it's really ugly. It all has to do with what he did. When someone says, you are the man, it often means you've got a lot of work to do to set things right. But the cross... The cross means that when we fall short, we're going to do it, right? When we fall short, we may have work to do, but God doesn't make us do it alone. The cross means He's going to hang in there with us. Even when we don't deserve it. Even when we've burned every other bridge. Even when everybody else has written us off, and justifiably so. the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you now and we're just going to drop our pretenses and admit that this week was not our shining moment. And... There were a lot of things that we did that we shouldn't have done and a lot of things that we should have done that we didn't do. And Lord, we throw ourselves at Your mercy and we put our hope and trust in Your Son, Jesus, to save us. Lord, give us the courage as we are forgiven in Your sight to go out and do what we can to make right what we have made wrong. 
to reconcile with those that we have hurt, to apologize for the wrong that we've done, and to make every effort, Lord, to live not for ourselves, but for you and for those around us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.